Okay, today is May the 15th. Okay, I don't hear any any hollering, so I guess that's right. 2012. <laughs> okay. Well, we had a graduation here Sunday after a church and went well. It's great that we have a facility that people can use it in that fashion. They were all three homeschooled and uh, it was just a delight to go to one of their graduations. I don't know if you've ever been to a homeschool graduation, but it's much different than a public school one, much different. I think you would enjoy it. And, uh, of course, uh, the Lord was lifted up in, in, uh, in each case. So let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion today. Um, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, the option of rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us another day. We recognize that we do not earn or deserve another day, nor do we deserve all the wonderful blessings that you pour upon us, the great system of perception, that we can talk to you at any time, and that you have given us the spiritual dynamics of this unique church age to learn and to apply. We thank you for all of these things, and we come humbly before you, recognizing that we can't do any of it apart from your grace and your enabling power. So we pray that you will help us to focus so that we can be indeed good and faithful servants. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Every once in a while you make a connection from some scripture in something that you're reading, and that happened uh, for me today, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, 32, verse 44, you might want to go there with me. Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 44. <clears throat> Actually, the verses are verses 45 through 47, but we'll get it in the context starting with verse 44. Deuteronomy 32, 44. Then Moses came and spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people, he was Joshua, the son of Nun. When Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words which I am warning you today. I want you to underline, take to heart the words. Take to heart the words. That's where I made a connection with something else I was reading today, that phrase. Skip down to verse 47. 
For it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. Please underline that as well. Verse 46. Take to heart all the words <coughs> which I am... <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> Verse 46. Take to heart all the words with which I am warning you today. Verse 47. For it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. We need to be, remi- we need to be reminded of that from time to time. Take to heart the Word. I was reading the recent issue of the Berean Call, and I'm going to read a few excerpts from you here. But This is the, the sentence that connected me with that verse in Deuteronomy. This is from the Berean uh, Call, the May issue. In the middle column, it says on the front page, first page, when the full counsel of of God's Word is not taken to heart and put into practice, there is little basis for spiritual growth. Did you hear that? If it's not taken to heart, as was commanded in Deuteronomy 32. Often the result is an experiential faith based on subjective feelings rather than the objective word of truth. Such a condition produces shallow, if not false faith and completely eliminates biblical discernment. We don't base our actions, our decisions or anything on subjective feelings. We use the Word of God and use discernment. It goes on to say dependence on an experiential faith is pervasive among Christians whether They are Pentecostal, Charismatics, or conservative evangelicals. This dependence on experiential faith, which is mainly based on feelings. The emerging church movement. It is an attempt to attract postmodern generations to Jesus through a refashioned Christianity. Do I need to again tell you what the definition of postmodernism is? When you see the word postmodernism, just think in your mind, no absolutes, because that's what it is essentially talking about. It is an attempt to attract the postmodern generation to Jesus through refashioned Christianity. This reinventing was initially a response against the marketing ploy of the church growth movement, which gave rise to to what has become known as seeker-friendly churches. See, these are all very euphemistic, created terms to couch what they're really saying. Seeker-friendly churches means you don't want to offend anyone. You want to give the people what they want to hear. That's what a seeker-friendly church is. In other words, you're going to employ ear-tickling. That's what the seeker-friendly churches are. These churches added consumer-oriented ingredients to attract the unchurched to church. I'm not sure what unchurched are. I guess it's people who don't go to church. Whether they're believers or unbelievers, I don't know. 
But in order to get them in, this is what they do. Positive sermons of short duration. Top 40 style contemporary music. Dramatic productions. Food courts. Video arcades. And rock style worship for the youth. It's happening all over. That approach, however, didn't, that didn't satisfy the desires of the young people who were craving a deeper spiritual experience. Rather than turning to the Bible, leaders of the emerging church movement turned to what they called authentic or vintage Christianity. And what is that? They went back really no further than the rituals, elements, and practices of the Roman Catholic Church. The sensuality of images, candles, and incense, as well as the rituals, attracted scores of young evangelicals. Bells and smells and imagery became powerful seduction. <laughs> Bells and smells. <laughs> we don't have any bells here, and if it smells... It's not incense. It's probably, well, it could be a number of things. <laughs> this affinity for the experiential opened the door to further unbiblical practice and teachings, particularly contemplative prayer. Are you all familiar with contemplative prayer? Have you heard that term before? Get into that in, in just a moment when, we, when it talks about IHOP. And it's not talking about the International House of Pancakes either. The emerging church movement's commitment to the experiential in opposition to the objective word of God eased the way for rejection of sound doctrine. And then there's a quote of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 through 4. That's the scripture where it says that in the latter days they will reject sound doctrine and they will turn to teachers who will tickle their ears. Among its numerous false teachings are these. This is talking about the emerging church movement. Jesus is not the exclusive way to God. Truth may be found in all religions. A social gospel displaces the biblical gospel, social gospel being a works-oriented gospel. A restore-the-earth agenda is emphasized over the eternal and mingled with all of these, we find universalism, visual idolatry, and an aggressive undermining of the Scriptures. That's what the emerging church movement is about, and it is rampant in our society today. Another movement is the International House of Prayer. That's the IHOP I was talking about. It's also identified with the Latter Rain movement and the Manifest Sons of God movement. In this movement, God is pouring out His Spirit in these last days and raising up prophets and apostles to direct an army of Spirit-filled believers, particularly young people, who are empowered to perform signs and wonders who must take dominion over the earth before Jesus can return. I mean, you have to be really disoriented to things, to think that we have to clean up the earth so that Christ can come back. I mean, we're going to get it into shape. We're not going to wait for him to come 
and set everything straight. Let me tell you, if Christ was waiting for us to get things straight, He would never return. The doctrine that anointed leadership can hear from God directly and that communication known as rhema, R-H-E-M-A, said to be the spoken word, supersedes the written word as the authority to which we are all to submit. Can you imagine what a disaster that would be? When you start buying into the idea that there are apostles and prophets today and that God speaks to them directly, and this has authority over the word, I just don't understand how people can buy this. I mean, don't they know the fallen nature of mankind and that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely? I mean, anyway, that's what the International House of Prayer is about. The pre prestigious Princeton Review in its survey of U.S. colleges and universities reported that the second most popular career choice of students today is, you know what it is, anybody? Take a guess. Huh? Well, that's not what this says. It's probably true. Psychology. Psychology. And <laughs> in fact, I, I was talking to a young person at the graduation, and they were... Uh, introducing themselves to me and telling me they where they were going. I said, oh, I said, what are you going to study? She said, psychology. I said, oh, <laughs> okay. Mm. If that trend, trend, that is the career choice of most students today, psychology, it says if that trend holds true, the next generation of evangelical Christians will be flooded with individuals who have fallen into the trap of a pseudoscience that is far more destructive to their faith than the false science of evolution. And he goes into that. You see, the Bible tells us that it is sufficient for all things in life and godliness. Period. From a biblical perspective, psycho psychological counseling not only denies the sufficiency of Scripture, but it is foundational, its foundational self concepts in its chief dogma of the innate goodness of mankind are diametrically opposed to the biblical truth about sinful nature of man. And then the last thing, see, I'll just get bits and pieces, you see, highlighted here. We have a generation that hasn't been grounded in the Word of God, and this lack of biblical discernment has made it vulnerable to seemingly good works and a motivation fueled by emotions. Isn't that true? I mean, what do you have if you don't have the Word of God as your absolute standard? You live by your emotions. He says, more significantly, it is a generation that is being deceived by a movement that has distorted the Scriptures for its own humanistic agenda. That's what's happening today. We're going to press on with our getting the gospel right and if I can find my place here okay I have to go up here we'll just start here it's the only place I can see
This says it's lesson 57. Uh, well, that's, that's, what, that's what this is. I think ours is 58 today. I just, I'm just going to do a quick uh, flyover to kind of bring us up to speed where we were. And we are, our, our subject matter has been uh, really the Bible apologetics. It's defending the Bible. Because anytime you go out and you're going to make a stand for Christ, what, have you, what are you going to stand on? The Word, right? And so whenever you make a, a dogmatic statement, especially when you're going to reference the Bible as your source, what should you expect? What are they going to do? They're going to attack the Bible because that is your source. What is their source? Well, it can be anything from just something they homemade, homespun psychology, or it could be something that someone told them. What amazes me is how many people who are adults don't know even the religion or the denomination, the ideological concepts of what they have been in their entire life with regards to eternal salvation or any, any other doctrines as far as that goes. I mean, you can talk to any person in a denomination. You can talk to a Methodist. You can talk to a Presbyterian. You can talk to... Um, uh, even to a large degree Catholics, you can talk to a, just about anyone and ask them, okay, I want to know what is your fundamental principles with regards to God and salvation? You know what you're going to They're going to draw a blank. Because all they do is go to church, they put in their hour or maybe less, they've done their part, they've gone through whatever rigmarole that they think is necessary, and they think this is going to keep them in good stead with God. And so when it gets down to actually, why do you believe what you believe, they're at a loss. And I hope that none of us will ever fall into that category. When someone says, well, okay, you, you're standing on the Bible, you're, you're saying that the Bible is your God, why? Why do you believe the, God, the Bible? They usually won't ask you that, but they'll usually say, well, I... I don't believe the Bible, or they might say, I don't believe all of it, or I don't know about it. The most important thing in their life, in anybody's life, is where are they going to spend eternity? Isn't that true? I mean, isn't that the biggest decision that you're ever going to make? Isn't that an issue that everyone should have priority number one and get that settled? And yet people just kind of slough it off to the side and they're just kind of, they've got a vague idea about what they believe, but they can't really uh, articulate what they believe. And so when it comes to the Bible and it being assailed, it being attacked, what we're going over is the evidence why you believe the Bible is the Word of God. And we spent a little time in illumination and revelation and inspiration. Remember those? How God has to illuminate the unbeliever. He has to even illuminate the believer. Right now, you are being illuminated by the Holy Spirit. And I assume you are all filled with the Holy Spirit because we have that time to uh, confess sins. And if you confessed any sins or if you took care of that issue, you're filled with the Holy Spirit and He is illuminating spiritual information to you right now. It doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on me. 
Well, it depends on me to the degree that I have to get it right. I have to be accurate. But it's not how eloquent I am. It's not how good-looking I may be or what my voice may sound like or any of those things. All I have to do is get it right. It's the same thing for you too. When you're talking to people about the Word of God, it doesn't depend on your personality. You don't have to have the gift of gab. All you have to do is get the right information out there. That's what the Holy Spirit can take and illumine an unbeliever so that he can understand these spiritual concepts. One of the things that we were looking at was prophecy. Remember we went into Israel and we were talking about how important it is that uh, Israel has gone back to uh, the land and is occupying the land now. They have their own nation. By the way, does anybody know what yesterday was? <laughs> May 14th, 1948, 64 years, Israel has been back in the land. And that is huge. When you start looking at what they have faced, where they came from, when they, uh, Ben-Gurion, declared independence and that they were a sovereign nation, and we had... Uh, What's the guy? I can't think of his name, the president at that time. Truman, yeah. Uh, Truman was the first to acknowledge them and accept them as a, as a nation. All these things. And they had nothing. I mean, it was less than nothing, nearly. And to see God's hand on that country all these, all these years, and to see that he was able to protect them against the hordes of pagans the Arabs that want nothing more than to annihilate them. And 64 later, years later, there they are. And another thing that we see, uh, well, what's on the board right now is the fact that God was going to bring them back to the land. This is all given in these uh, scriptures that are shown here. Um, this is a, another Zechariah chapter 12, verse uh, 2 and 3. If I can get this bigger. Maybe I can get this. Let me, let me see if I can zoom and get this bigger. I didn't get bigger, did it? Okay, well, I'll, I'll mess with it later. Uh, <clears throat> did, what happened? Did I, did I miss? No, okay. Here, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 2 through 3. This, I believe, was made, this uh, prophecy was made 2,500 years ago. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling to, uh, unto all the people round about. I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. Do you know what a burdensome stone is? Burdensome stone means you can't do anything with it. If a burdensome stone might be a stone that is in your way and you want to move it, but it's a burdensome stone because you can't move it. That's a burdensome stone. And Israel is certainly a burdensome stone to many nations and many people around the world. For the most part, what happened? Uh, for the most part, 
Israel is a mongrel nation to most people. They think it's a nation that is illegitimate. Israel is the only country that doesn't have their own um, capital. It's essentially Jerusalem is an international capital. And they are, the anti-Semitism continues to grow. And this is to be expected because we recognize that God has made certain unconditional promises to the Jews and Satan is going to do everything within his power to annihilate the Jews. And yet here we are, and this is the, the focal point of world geopolitical issues. What nation is at the very epicenter of that? You know what it is. It's Israel, this little bitty country. Okay, um, the Bible emphasizes the importance of paying attention to prophecy. And this is where we start tonight's lesson with Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16, and then verses 18 through 19. This is Peter speaking. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. It's not, they didn't have to devise clever tales in order to convince the people. They weren't conjuring up stories in order to get the people's approval or try to convince them. They were simply stating what they saw with their own eyes. And in context, what this is talking about, was when they saw Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. He showed them what He really looks like. And that's what He's talking about. He says, And we ourselves heard this utterance. Not only did they, did they see um, Jesus Christ in His own beauty, uh, God spoke. He said, uh, This utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain, at the Mount of Transfiguration. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Now here again, just like we had in Deuteronomy, over and over and over in the Word of God, it is warning us, it is encouraging us, you do well to pay attention to God's Word. You cannot disobey that mandate and get by with it. God is very serious about His children studying His Word, growing in grace, and being good, faithful ambassadors. And there's very few believers that would even know what I'm talking about when I mention those things. Because they haven't made God's Word a priority. So we have the prophetic word, look at this, made more sure. In other words, what he's saying is the word of God is more sure even to them than what they saw with their own eyes and what they heard with their own ears. Peter is saying the word of God is a more sure witness than what we saw with our eyes and what we heard with our ears. It's the Word of God that you must pay attention to. As to a lamp shining in a dark place, until day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, have you ever been in a really dark place and wish you had any kind, just some kind of light? 
Have you ever been in a place where you needed a flashlight? You needed any kind of light? One that comes to mind is, <laughs> I don't remember, I was on vacation somewhere, and uh, I guess, no, no, I take it back. I must have been going to a conference because I was by myself. Gary didn't come to this conference. So I was at a, a, a hotel or motel, whatever it was, <clears throat> and it was in the middle of the night, and I had to go to the bathroom. And it was so pitch dark. You couldn't see your, your hand in front of your face. Maybe yeah, some of y'all are grinning. You know what I'm going to say. So I got up. I was disoriented. I didn't know where anything was. And I was feeling all over the walls. And, de- you know, just I got to where I couldn't even find my way back to the bed. And I was desperately looking for some kind of light. I would have given you $20 for a match. And the situation was getting critical. Now, that's the time when a light shining in a dark place, you see the importance of it. Now, we kind of grin at that example, but it gives you a little bit of idea how important the Word of God is. Because apart from God's Word, we have no light. This is our truth. This is our life. And we live in a very desperately dark world. This is how we can discern what is right, what is wrong, what is truth, and what is false. Now, the Pharisees knew the prophecies concerning Christ and yet still refused to recognize Him as their Messiah. The rejection of Him fulfilled the prophecies concerning Him. Did you, do you understand what this is saying? When they rejected the Messiah, what it was doing was fulfilling what the prophets had said already. This is what I, it just, it just must, Satan must be frustrated to the nth degree. Because he's going to try to do everything he can to thwart God's plan from being fulfilled. And yet the more he tries to kill the deal, the more he's fulfilling the prophets. Same thing. Acts 13, 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath fulfill these by condemning him. You see what I'm saying? How great is our God? Hundreds of years before this came to pass, the prophets were prophesying it. And Satan knew. You think uh, Satan is not. He's not ignorant of God's Word. He's got to know that the prophets had prophesied this, and yet he is motivating these Pharisees to do everything to actually fulfill the prophecy. Because that's what he's got to do in order to try to thwart God's plan. I think that's a great thing. I mean, Satan is trying to demotivate us. He's trying to frustrate us. And one reason is because he has a mountain of frustration on himself. And he can't do anything about it. There are so many prophecies concerning Christ, over 270. Now, this this next two points, two or three points that are coming up, I want you to pay particular attention to them because they are phenomenal points. And I didn't make them, by the way. Uh, I found them. They were in in a journal. So there's over 270 prophecies, and I might say specific prophecies, concerning Christ, and that it uh, it would take more than a few screens worth of space to list them all. Further, Jesus would have 
had no control over many of them, such as his birthplace or his time of birth. I mean, people, how would, how would Jesus, how would the Messiah say, okay, uh, I think I, I'm going to choose to be born in Bethlehem. Do you choose where you're going to be born? No. And the timing. Do you know why the timing is so important? Because in Daniel chapter 9, with verse, I think it's verse 25 to 28, 29, right in there, there was just a small window in history that Messiah could be born. It had to be after he presented himself as Messiah, that was his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, it had to be after that, and it had to be before Israel was wiped out as a nation in 70 A.D. Now, that's, all, that's about a 40-year time frame that Messiah had to be born. Think about that. I mean, when you're looking at the eons of time, and you're thinking about the thousands of years, millenniums, one, one after another, a little 40-year window of opportunity isn't very wide, is it? Of course, uh, if someone was trying to become the Messiah, he couldn't choose where he was going to be born or when he was going to be born. Second, the odds of one man, listen to this, the odds of one man accidentally fulfilling even 16 of these 270 prophecies respecting Christ as being Messiah, the chances of fulfilling just 16 of these are 1 in 10 to the 45th power. You know what that means? That's a 10 with 45 zeros after it. Now, I know you think, okay, well, that's a big number. But this guy puts it in perspective. Listen to this. For comparison, there are less than 10 to the 28th power of atoms in the entire universe. Does that kind of put it in perspective? Now, th- now, I don't want to just breeze by this. I want you to think about this. What are atoms? Well, everything in the earth universe is made up of atoms. And they are so small that they, we can't see them, even with our big microscopes. We know they're there, and they, des- they describe you have the neurons and the protons, and they're circling, and they're doing all these things, and they have graphs, but they've never seen them. They just say, yeah, this is it. So your body is made up of how many atoms? A lot. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, trillions, zillions, I don't know how many there. That's just in your body. Now think of every... This, this is the building block. This is the elements that make up the universe. Think of how big the earth is and how actually small it is compared to the sun. And think of the sun as being one star in the Milky Way galaxy of billions of stars, and the Milky Way galaxy is just one of billions of galaxies that have multi-billions of stars, how many atoms would that be? I don't think I can figure it out on my calculator. It is a big number. And they, whoever came up with this said, how would you figure that out anyway? I don't know what it is, but that would be 10 to the 28th power. And Jesus, who affirmed the Bible as the Word of God, proved His reliability and the deity of His resurrection, a historical fact not easily ignored. So, 
if just 16 of these 270 prophecies, specific prophecies of identifying Jesus Christ as Messiah is 10 with 45 zeros after it, and just 16 of them would be... No, that is 16. By the way, that's 16. And, and 10 to the 28 with that many zeros after us. How many atoms is in the earth? How much proof do we need, by the way, anyway? huh? How much proof? How important are the prophecies? God has made it to where no human that has a thinking ability of a normal person has any excuse, do they? This next thing is important too, this next one. Now consider the Quran. Its author, Muhammad, performed no miracles to back up his message even when he was asked to by his followers in Surah 1791 through 95 and 29, Surah 29, 47 through 51. Only in later tradition, the Hadith. Do you all know what the Hadith is? Have you ever heard of the Hadith? The Hadith is kind of like the Mishnah in the Jewish religion. You know, the Mishnah is uh, the rabbis who interpreted the law and uh, it's kind of like a commentary is what the Mishnah is and that's kind of what the Hadith is. It's stories that were written when Muhammad was still alive by people who knew him. And so it's kind of like a commentary on his life and it has a lot of weight. I mean, it was... See, we don't, we don't have a Mishnah or a Hadith we don't need them. We have the Word of God and it speaks to us. The Holy Spirit enlightens us to where we can understand the whole realm of God. So this, this Hadith that has a lot of weight in the religion of Islam, only in much later tradition, the Hadith, do any alleged miracles even show up and these are quite fanciful like Muhammad cutting the moon in half and have zero reliable, uh, reliable testimony to back them up. There are passages in the Koran. Uh, i I just give you one little thing here about the Koran. I was reading the Koran today. I spent some time looking in it, and I have a whole, whole file here that I could tell you about the Koran and uh, how absurd much of it is, or uh, the things that I read, that... In, in a verse, it contradicts itself right in the verse. And, but something that surprised me is that there are places in the Koran that looks like they kind of lean towards Reformed theology. You'll see what I'm talking about here. This is in uh, Surah 2, 6 and 7. It says, and this is quoting the Koran, As for the disbelievers... Whether thou warn them or thou, or thou warn them not, it is all one for them. They believe not. Allah has sealed their hearing and their hearts, and on their eyes there is a covering. Theirs will be an awful doom. Doesn't that sound like Reformed theology? You get Calvinism? In other words, uh, in, in Reformed theology with regards to believers... They say that God chooses who's going to uh, accept the... the or, or let me put it this way. 
God chose who Christ would die for on the cross. He didn't die for, for everyone. He only died for those that he chooses to save. And then he has to give them the faith to believe. And everyone else is relegated to the lake of fire. It's not that he couldn't save them, but he chose not to save them. And this is supposed to bring him glory. And that's what I was surprised to see, this same type of thing in the Koran. And I don't, uh, let me just paraphrase a few things that uh, I had in the Koran, that I was reading in the Koran. Is, is that something y'all would want to see? Wanna? Well, let me get stop this for a moment. There's just one verse in particular that you can see how it would, uh, what it's about. I wouldn't plan on bringing this up, so I have to get it here. Okay, here it is. This isn't, uh, you won't be able to see it because I didn't blow it up, but I'll give you a little bit, a little taste anyway. Uh, There is a hadith that that does not stand up to the challenge of real common sense. In other words, there is a, You'll see from what this, remember what the Hadith is, it's kind of like a commentary, it's about stories from people who knew uh, Muhammad personally. This is in Shahith Bukhan, Bukhan, volume 4, book 54, number 414. It says, he, Muhammad, said, first of all, there was nothing but Allah, and then he created his throne. His throne was over the water, and he wrote everything in the book in the heaven and created the heavens and the earth. Do you see anything? Where did the water come from? Do you see? Huh? <laughs> First of all, there was nothing, and he, uh, and he created the throne, and his throne was over the water. Well, this is one of the things this is pointing out. Uh, if there is nothing, how God could have put his throne over the water? Which water? What was holding the water? There must have been an earth to hold it. Then how is it that he creates the earth after sitting on the water? How is it that the heavens and the earth are created after the waters? Don't you need to have uh, to have an earth to contain the water? And don't you have to have the heavens to hold the earth? Uh, beyond the fact that the whole notion expressed in this hadith is ludicrous, there is also an, er- an error in the order of creation. I don't want to read the whole thing to you, but it goes on to show that um, there are several scriptures in the, uh, not just the hadith, but in the Quran itself. And I have the Shura uh, markers to show you where it is, that Muhammad thought in the same way that other people thought of his day, and that is that the earth is flat. And he talks about the sun uh, hiding behind a throne and having to get permission to come back up again, and that there was different ways to get to the sun because you didn't know where it was going to come up the next time. The whole thing was predicated upon the idea that the earth was flat. That's what they believed at that time. 
I don't want to take all the time to do it, I, and I'm not trying to um, go down this road and, and just besmirch uh, something else. But it, we don't have to do that. But when I'm, when I'm showing you the accuracy of the Bible and how absurd anything else that would try to come up with uh, any prophecy, and by the way, there's no prophecy in the Koran anyway, and you have the, uh, these absurd things like this. The reason I, I was kind of going to this, this area is because I'm about to get into the scientific facts. This is another aspect of the Bible uh, that you can, you can rely on to be good evidence. The, the Bible is not a science book, but everything that it says with regards to that would have a bit of a scientific aspect is absolutely perfect right on. Here's a few of them. Uh, first of all, uh, science is in constant revision. The world was flat, remember, and now it's round. The scientific world is always redoing and redefining to fit the exposed facts. The Bible, on the other hand, has always been acceptable in all ages without revision or redefining. And that's something. Because God is the revealer of the facts in the Bible, and God is never wrong. And so the Bible, we don't ever have to revise the Bible to come up with the uh, current and most sophisticated scientific understanding we have of the day because the Bible is already spot on. Here's a few. The earth is round. This is in Job chapter 26, verse 10. He has inscribed a circle on the surface of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. Have you ever been to the beach and just looked out at the water? If you look closely, it's not a straight line. There's the slightest little arc. Um, the Bible informs us that the earth is round at a time when science believed that the earth was flat. It was the scriptures that inspired Christopher Columbus to sail around the world. You won't hear this. Christopher Columbus is um, persona non grata in the world today. They are trying to besmirch him because he was a Christian. He wrote, this by the way came out of his diary. This is what he wrote. It was the Lord who put it into my mind. I could feel his hand upon me. There's no question the inspiration was from the Holy Spirit because he comforted me with rays of marvelous illumination from the Holy Scriptures. Now, that's something you won't see in a history book. And yet, this is from his diary. Seems like that might be an important fact. How about this one? The universe is expanding. Isaiah 40:22 It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth notice again circle of the earth this is when this is when everyone it wasn't until the 15th century that it was proved that the earth was not flat Christopher Columbus It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. Scientists are beginning to understand that the universe is expanding or stretching out. At least seven times the scriptures, in the Scripture, we are clearly told that God stretches out the heavens like a curtain. 
How about this one? The earth hangs on nothing. Now, of course, when this was written, they didn't have the benefit of going on the other side of the earth and taking a picture back. I know I've, I've seen this, and you've probably seen it in the books too. It's a famous picture because the first time that the earth was taken from the other side of the moon. It, you, the, you're looking at the moon and the earth because the picture was taken from a spaceship that was on the other side of the moon. And we can see what? It's hanging on nothing. So it says, He stretches out the earth over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Now, this doesn't mean much to us. But just think if you were reading it any time before when, I don't know, 200 years ago, not even that long probably, people would think, what do you mean? The, it's got to be hanging by a chain or, you know, it's got to have a platform, a big rock, it's, uh, the back of a giant turtle, something. Less than 200 years ago, through the advent of massive telescopes, Science learned about the great empty space in the north. The Bible claims that the earth freely floated in space. Science then thought that the earth sat on a large animal. You know, that wasn't that, that far back in time, was it? Less than 200 years ago. You know, we've only had the car about 100 years. Just, just think for a moment how much has changed in our lifetime. We have a lady named Kay Corderman that used to go to this church, she moved away, and she's 96 years old. Think of what the changes she has seen in 96 years. I think it was probably, I don't know, 1910, something like that, isn't that when the uh, automobile was invented? And surely it, it didn't even get out. A lot of people didn't even see one until maybe, what, the 1920s, something like that maybe? 1903. 1903, Okay. And, you know, that's when it's invented, but when they went, actually went in production and people actually started seeing them, probably at least 10 years, 15 years later, something like that. Anyhow, look at what we have today. And so the earth, to us, the earth hangs on nothing. We just yawn and say, yeah, tell me something I don't know. But to them, it was, well, how could you understand this? They understood gravity at this time, but they didn't understand. There was so much they didn't understand. <laughs> you know what really got me? You know, the TV was something. The, the TV, you know, is, a, is a, a miracle, it seems like. But the thing that got me just about more than anything else is when they came out with the VHS recorders, that you could take a tape and put it in a machine and see not only sound but a movie at the same time. And it wasn't like going on a picture show, you know, showing a film. It was just on a tape. How did they get sound and that video off of a tape? I mean, blows, blows my mind. And yet today, what is it? How many of you play VHSs today, huh? <laughs> Nobody. Oh, you do? <laughs> we got some fossils over here. <laughs> well, I guess, Charlie, you got, if you got 500 of them, you probably still <laughs> use them. <laughs> But you've got to have nearly a special player to do it. So it was floating in space and it was hanging on nothing and this was huge. How about the stars are innumerable? I've got to tell you, 
Well, uh, let me give you this first. Now I've got to end too, but I want to tell you something else too. Genesis 15:5, And he took him, Abram, that was Abram's, uh, Abraham's name before it changed to a- a- Abraham as Abram. And he took Abraham outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them, which he wasn't. And he said to him, So shall your, your descendants be. This was God showing him, Here you are, Abram. You don't have any child. You're barren. Your wife is barren. You're old. You're 99. You're, she's 99. You're 100. And yet I'm telling you that your descendants are going to be more than these stars. In Jeremiah chapter 32, 22, it says, and this was written 2,500 years ago, As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, neither the sand of the sea measured. Now, the reason, what I want to tell you about is this. Every, time, every once in a while, some little something happens that stands in your mind, you always remember it. I was in Lot, Texas. And I was building a log home. And I had some hombres that were helping me. And when I first used them the first time, they didn't speak any Spanish. I didn't speak any English. But this was, I had worked, worked with them for about a year. They, or they worked with me for about a year, maybe even two years. So we got to know each other pretty good. And I spoke pretty good job site Spanish. And they spoke pretty good English. So one night we were, at, uh, we were living on a job site in a, in a travel trailer. And one night, it was real dark out there, and we were looking up at the sky, and I asked him, I said, um, how many stars do you think they are? And every time I asked him a question, I had about four or five guys, and they would get over in there like a huddle. <laughs> They're talking all, and I just wait, and then they came out and said, okay, what? Maybe 500? Well, there's a lot more than that. And then I ask them, how big do you think those stars are? And come out. I said, okay, how big? About the size of the house. I said, how far away do you think they are? They went through their deal. Maybe 300 miles. How, how do you talk? And there was a language barrier. I was trying to talk to them in Spanish. The Estrella, in the, I can't remember the name for heaven. Cielo, the sky. Anyway, um, the reason I'm telling you that is there's a lot of people that may understand that, uh, you know, stars are a lot bigger than a house. I mean, you can put a million earths in the sun, and that's just a kind of an average-sized star. And the distance is measured in light years. Light travels 186,000 miles per second. It can go around the Earth in eight times in one second. And a light year is how far that light can travel in a year. That's a long ways. And the number of them. I'm so fortunate I live out in the country and I have a telescope. You really don't need one. But I like to look at deep sky objects sometimes. And when you don't have the light pollution, and I just have a 12-inch Dobsonian. It's a, you know, so-so telescope. I can see the moons. uh, I can see four moons of Jupiter and and the stripes in it. The ring around Saturn and this type of thing. But when you take that telescope and just point it, especially in the summer sky, anywhere, and 
usually when what you see, you just, it takes your breath away. You're looking at a little bitty speck in the whole ocean of the, of the sky. And it's got hundreds and hundreds of those little points of lights in there. And they're different colors, they're different sizes. Hundreds of them. And we're just looking at, for the most part, in our own galaxy. Some of them are out there further, but when you think about the stars, how many there are. And then you think of the fact that God had Adam name the animals, but God named the stars. Uh, how can you come up with ten zillion names? God knows who they are. And He keeps them in the right place, in the right location. And His message is in the stars. They're not just helter-skelter out there, just thrown out there. They're in their specific places. And one of these days, I keep, people keep asking me to go back and teach the star series again. It's phenomenal what we miss. We're in there watching an idiotic boob tube sitcom if we would just turn that off and go outside and look at the sky. You can't do it in the city so much anymore, but most of us live out in the country. Aren't you all in awe when you see it? We still have light pollution here. Anyway, the stars are innumerable. They're beautiful. And they really have a lot to say. But I don't. We're out of time. So we'll continue this next time. Let's close. Heavenly Father, we are so in awe of who and what you are, what you've created, that you are mindful of us, that you have revealed in your immutable, inerrant, complete and total revelation of what we need to know that we can't help but love you and be in awe of you. And yet we are very fickle and feeble creatures. We can switch gears from being in awe of you to being afraid and hitting the panic button in a very short time. So we are also very thankful of your grace. So we pray that you will help us to focus upon these things that are great evidences of your mighty word. We will be able to pull them out at any time and explain them to a person who is in un unenlightened and does not believe or does not know about your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.